Hello, this is Thomas Cruz of SAE and Associates. Today we'll kick off our podcast series focusing on the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, compliance work of SAE and Associates. Our guests today are Dr. Steve Estrin, CEO of SAE and Associates, and Dr. Frank McCory, a key member of SAE's independent parity compliance team. Dr. Estrin has 35 years of experience as a high-level public sector administrator and innovative mental health and substance abuse program developer for the most vulnerable at-risk populations. He's held positions as Director of Adult Psychiatric Services for the New York State Office of Mental Health, New York City Field Office, Director of Public Sector Psychiatry at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and Director of Program Development at North Shore LIJ Health Systems. He is the project director of the parity compliance activities at SAE. Dr. McCory is SAE's independent compliance administrator team leader. Dr. McCory previously served as the director of New York City operations for the New York State Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services. His long career in the addictions field has focused on system transformation and integration efforts, most notably in the areas of public health, HIV AIDS, co-occurring mental health and addictive disorders, quality and performance measurement, and managed care. I'm glad you're both here today because I want to talk to you briefly about the challenges that come with trying to comply with the parity law. But first and foremost, let's kick off the podcast series with a concise definition of the law itself. So before telling us about why this parity work is so important, especially as behavioral health professionals, in layman's terms, Dr. McCory, Maybe you could start. Tell the listeners what the parity law is. Thank you, Thomas, and thank uh, thanks to uh, Steve and SAE for the invitation today to uh, to speak about the parity law, which is one of the most significant pieces of legislation in the past uh, 40 years in terms of uh, behavioral health services. And essentially, it really boils down to a very simple uh, kind of uh, concept, a rule that we could use, and that is essentially the way that healthcare uh, benefits are administered on the medical surgical side, whatever the rules are around accessing care and benefit design right. and utilization review, all of those, those things that fit on the medical surgical side have to be the same on the behavioral health side. Historically, that hasn't been the case. Yeah. Historically, uh, the rules for, to, to access behavioral health care, as well as the a benefit design package have been very different from what you how you access med surge uh, benefits. That is so important to where uh, this country is trying to go in terms of health care and it's one of the two really fundamental pillars in my view mm -hmm. as to the health care transformation that's underway. The other is the Affordable Care Act right. and between the Affordable Care Act and the uh, mental health parity rules, law and rules, uh, we have an ability perhaps to transform the way healthcare is delivered in this country. And the first piece is the Affordable Care Act put behavioral health services as an essential health benefit. Mm -hmm. So that, that essentially means that uh, plans have to include behavioral health, mental health and substance use services in their package of services. And secondly, the parity rules say, well, great, they have to be included. That's according to the sure. Affordable Care Act. Right. But we have to be, the, the access to those services has to be the same 
as the access to medical surgical. Absolutely. So things like pre-authorization, mm -hmm. co-pays, co-insurance, utilization review processes, application of medical necessity criteria, all of those things, the way that gets done on the med surge side are have to be done the same side on the, on, on the behavioral health side. Really, really exciting, pretty complicated, but really exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we can assume that this Parity Act that we're, we're discussing has had such an impact in terms of access to behavioral health services. Uh, as behavioral health professionals, Dr. Astronaut, I'll pass this over to you. Tell us why you think this work is so important. Well, the, the importance of this act is that there is one fundamental thrust. It's to improve access to care, to, for behavior, behavioral health care, for some of the most vulnerable at-risk populations in this country. And the intent here is to remove the barriers that prevented people from getting access to care. And barriers which were not predicated on good clinical judgment, but on decisions that were not rooted in good clinical practice. Right. And I say, Thomas, you know, it's interesting that you say the impact has been uh, so enormous, but in fact it hasn't yet, mm. which is really interesting. The law was passed in the uh, 2009, 2008, in that range, but, and uh, the final rules only came out in 2014. Mm. But um, providers, managed care companies, and managed behavioral health companies have been slow in adopting the changes that are needed to be in compliance with these rules. And so there's an, a, a, certainly a tremendous potential to improve access for, as Steve just said, the most vulnerable people. We know that people with behavioral health disorders are more likely to have chronic health conditions. We know that people with chronic health conditions are more likely to have behavioral health disorders. To transform the healthcare system, right. it's required for access to care to be equally available on both sides of this uh, continuum of care. And so the, the potential is tremendous, but the rules are complicated, yeah, right. and it, it requires a fair amount of diligence, whether you're a managed care provider, a managed behavioral health provider, or a behavioral health provider, a, a fair amount of diligence to be able to uh, comply with the rules and to uh, equalize the playing field for behavioral health and medical surge benefits. You know, I think one key phrase you've got to keep in mind is that access to care has to be based on recognized, clinically appropriate standards of care. That is your, your standard to determine the level of care to which you are appropriately assigned. Oh, that's great. You guys have been uh, involved in this parity work for two years now. So as one of the first appointed independent compliance administrators, how does SAE's team monitor parity? Because what's emerging in this discussion is not only the implementation of practices that adhere to the parity law, mm -hmm. but also assuring continued compliance, mm -hmm. right? That's the next step. Right. So, yeah. I think one of the, again, one of the fundamental principles that we've uncovered, and I think Frank can go into greater detail as the team leader, is that you really have to look at sustainability of change. That is, that is essential. Right. That plans can make changes to meet parity, but you have to ensure that the change is sustainable, that it doesn't fall back to the prior inappropriate 
decision making. You must ensure that the change that you have noted continues over a sustained period of time. Yeah, and you know, implementation science, uh, the science of looking at how something becomes implementable and sustain, talks about sustainability as the most difficult phase in uh, taking a practice and making it routine mm -hmm. or normative in an organization. And the uh, structure that SAE has set up here to help with monitoring, really sustainability is the goal. Uh, but it starts way back with policy formation. Um, and it's the first place to start. It really looks at, are the policies compliant with the laws? Are the way you do pre-authorization for med surge benefits, for example, the same as how you do for behavioral health? Right. Are your utilization review policies uh, consistent across those two domains of the continuum of care? And then we move to probably the, the a much more difficult phase for uh, these large managed care organizations and, um, and behavioral health organizations, and that is implementation, in which that change in policy to comply with the law now gets transformed into actual operational practices and procedures that are observable both in the data as well as individual clinical reviews making what was change in policy manifest in the practice and procedures. So there's a monitoring and a clinical audit function that goes into implementation right. that is key to the transformation of the organization. And finally, as Steve was suggesting, sustainability, which is and rather than a short-term look at how um, uh, the change has been made, looking at the support systems that exist to make that implementation normative. Things like training, supervision, things, uh, data monitoring, continuous quality improvement when, uh, when we see that the application of medical necessity criteria is not the same on the behavioral health side as on the med surge side. Uh, the UM processes are not the same. What is your CQI process in place to improve it and to sustain it, which often involves monitoring data over a long period of time. But that model from policy through implementation through sustainability leads to a permanent change in the way behavioral health care is uh, accessed and delivered for these organizations. For sure, for sure. You know, and there's another aspect here that we've discovered in our work, both with uh, the health plan and its behavioral health vendor, and that is the impact of the different corporate cultures and how they relate to each other. This is often overlooked on the quantitative side, but to what degree is accountability carried out? Does that run afoul of the clashing corporate cultures? Um, how does the vendor relate to its, its health plan? Uh, are they comfortable, for example, in taking orders and having their policies reviewed? their processes reviewed? Or are they more comfortable in their corporate culture of being kind of a lone wolf? And on the part of the health plan, are they comfortable in abdicating an oversight role? Mm -hmm. I mean, as long as one is receiving revenue, are they, is that simply enough for them to, ab to abdicate their role as an overseer, which is critical? And it may well be that the leadership has difficulty with it. So these subtle corporate interactions also impact the phases of our approach to parity compliance, which are discovery, 
evaluation, implementation, and the quantification of change, which leads to sustainability. And that's a great point, Steve. And uh, we found in our work that this historical separation between physical health and behavioral health, right. which goes way back even into philosophies around mind-body separations, mm -hmm. this historical separation has led to somewhat uh, of a uh, minor or a, even a lackadaisical oversight role for the, for the health plan. Yeah. Because often the discussion has been more about finances than it hasn't been about, about cl good clinical care, with the health plan sometimes deferring to the behavioral health plan as to how the, uh, uh, how the benefits are managed and delivered. Um, whereas what we see is the health plan has to be a much more active partner, looking not just at uh, the bottom line, whether how much it's costing them per member per month cost, but really how is that behavioral health vendor delivering the care that your benefit package has promised to its members. And as Steve said, the clash in corporate cultures can be pretty right. pretty serious when finally people start to say, wait a minute, we both have a stake in this. I can't outsource my behavioral health uh, service and not take a very active role in seeing what care is delivered there. Because now we know the bottom line is the care will be better if the, for those people with chronic health conditions if the behavioral health service is effective. Absolutely. It'll affect your bottom line on the med surge side, not just on the behavioral health side. Right. Yeah, this is critical because uh, I believe one of the findings is people with serious mental illness uh, who have chronic co-occurring medical conditions wind up on the inpatient medical side significantly more exactly. than anticipated. That's costly. Exactly. So it's really imperative for the health plan to get a grip on the impact of the co-occurring chronic medical condition and the relationship to the mental, mental illness that yes, they're dealing with. Yes, absolutely. And we see these light bulbs going on all across the country in managed care organizations that yes. are starting to figure out, wait a minute, I want, if I want to deliver better clinical care at lower cost, part of that triple aim of the uh, 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 IHI uh, triple aim that's been adopted in the Affordable Care Act. If I want to deliver better care at a lower cost, I have to be engaged on the behavioral health side to help those folks with chronic health conditions who too often land up in the ER or in an inpatient bed because of their depression, their anxiety, their alcoholism. If we can get better integrated care and get access to care being equal, we have a chance at really changing the clinical outcomes and the costs. Right. This really brings to fore the importance of really getting a grip on the key role that integration of behavioral health and medical care play in improving care and decreasing cost. Mm. And it also mm -hmm. raises to me as I'm thinking, one of the things I think the health plan staff and the vendor staff have to really get more knowledgeable about is the impact of integrated care. What works? What's useful? How do we best integrate behavioral health and medical care? And this has got to be part of the, an integral part of their training. I want to go back to that point about, you mentioned the, the corporate clashing, right? The, this, this idea that there, there's so many players involved mm -hmm. and of course differing opinions, that's inevitable. Has that emerged as the most glaring issue that you've come across as you're doing this parity work? 
Well, I think what we've seen happen is that the health plan has taken full responsibility to be the overseer mm -hmm. of behavioral health benefits rather than simply giving it out to the behavioral health vendor that they're working with and basically washing their hands. Uh, I think what's emerged now is their realization we've really got to have an impact in terms of overseeing what's going on in terms of clinical care in addition to the financial bottom line, so to speak. Yeah. I think some of the other issues that we've seen, and, and it'll probably make the behavioral health companies a little bit more uncomfortable mm -hmm. in terms of our what we see on clinical audit, but is a, really an inconsistent application of medical necessity criteria that just leads to questions as to whether in some, uh, and this has nothing to do with comparability, this just has to do with access to care, whether all the decisions are really based on good, good uh, application of the medical necessity criteria. We've also discovered a real interesting point, and, and, and we're all consumers of care, so I understand how when I get a explanation of benefits, how difficult it is to receive that on the med surge side. Right. Um, the communications with uh, consumers really seems to really needs a whole rethinking because it's just not transparent and it doesn't really activate the consumer to understand what, what care they're receiving and why they're not receiving some other care. It's very complicated. Mm. It's, almost it's almost impossible to decipher in some instances. Wow. So on, in addition to this, the clash of cultures and the need for a much more proactive uh, payer, the managed care organization, I see some of those issues within the behavioral health field, inconsistent application of medical necessity criteria, uh, poor communication with consumers that really speak to transparency, um, it, it, things around utilization management, utilization review that are inconsistent are really key issues if we're going to meet the goal of both parity as well as the goal of healthcare transformation. That's great. And you mentioned UMUR, and one of our next podcasts will be speaking with Dr. Maria Messina and Brian Baldwin, who will be touching on UMUR material as well. So, That's great. Yeah, That's yeah. Great. It's been a key issue, uh, Thomas, and uh, one that we hope that the behavioral health companies will look at in terms of their internal view of uh, how they're complying with the law, um, as well as uh, that consumer at organizations we hope consumer organizations really start to understand how important this parity rule is to the health care, to the uh, d delivery of care to their constituents. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, you guys have both been uh, knee deep in this parity work for two years now. When you, when you look back, what is emerging as the most fulfilling aspect of this work? Well, I could start basically saying that it's, it's a very good feeling to know that we're able to influence the knowledge dissemination to the consumer, to make it in a way that it's health literacy compatible to the consumer, that rather than getting a document which is almost unintelligible in its te technical aspects, we're working with the health plan to provide information in a way that's discernible and understandable to the consumer, to the person that's involved in their health plan. And fundamentally, the other aspect is we're seeing growth in continued access to care. I think when you talk to Alex, uh, you'll see that his data is showing improved access to care, more spending on the part of the health plan, which is another reflection of access to care. People are getting access to care, which is the 
fundamental point of this initiative. Right. Yeah, and I, I have to say this has been a, a tremendously challenging but rewarding uh, project that I've been involved in. Uh, I did HIV work early in the epidemic in New York when it first uh, expressed itself in the injection drug use population. And so I was exposed to the medical side of things, a little bit more than a lot of the behavioral health folks that would be working in the field. And, so, and it was interesting to see, but I didn't appreciate the separation of uh, these two fields as much as, as I went on in my career. And this opportunity to use Parity and the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. as an opportunity to treat the whole patient to, and in an integrated way where access to care is the same and where behavioral health and medical med surge issues are all integrated in a single treatment plan it's just very, very exciting because I think this this does have the parity has parity with access to care through uh, essential health benefits raises the possibility of transforming this healthcare system in a way that uh, before uh, the ACA and parity could never even be envisioned. So it's been very, very exciting work for me. Very, uh, I've learned an awful lot in doing it. It's great, uh, and it's been a great opportunity to share some of those uh, insights with you today, Tom's. Yeah, now one final point. Parity still is at its infancy. Mm -hmm. And we've been working on this now for two years, and we've really begun to refine the issue on the mental health and chemical dependency side. But I think in the coming years, we will have to deal with uh, the comparison to the medical surgical, mm -hmm. which right now is not very clear. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's safe to say in our two years, we've really basically focused on the mental health and chemical dependency side and kind of dipped into relative comparison to the medical surgical side. But that brings with it problems because treatment on the medical surgical side is quite different than the mental health. For sure, yeah. And, uh, this, I think, is the challenge in the coming years. Yes. A, a good example of that, Steve, is the uh, inpatient that gets governed by DRGs, for example, but on the inpatient side of behavioral health, it's this pre-authorization as well as there's a continued stay kind of function that you might not see if you were governed by your DRG, which is in kind of episodic payment benefit. Right. So there are a lot of challenges to lining up the med surge processes uh, of utilization management, access to care, with behavioral health to arrive at a determination of comparability. That's a, that's a great point. Steve. Absolutely, and, and I believe I'll be speaking to Alex about this. You know, he often refers to the uh, apples to orange yes. comparison, apples right? Apples to oranges, right. yes. So, um, yeah, exactly I look forward to that. Right, right. So, yeah, I look forward to that podcast as well. Yeah, and I think another, another final point, just as the challenge is to start to bring in the comparison with a med surge, the challenge is also to the various states to begin to enforce parity, mm -hmm. uh, to begin to, to make this a critical point of state government, that they're committed to the enforcement of parity, because if the state is committed to the enforcement of parity, more people will get access to care. Well, that concludes today's podcast. Uh, I want to thank Dr. McCory and Dr. Estrin for kicking off our series in a great way for our podcast on the parity law. 
Again, my name is Thomas Cruz, and if you have any questions, feel free to email me at tcruz at saeassociates.com. That's tcruz at saeassociates.com. And you can subscribe to our mailing on our website, saeandassociates.com, for issue briefs, podcasts, and e-blasts on everything related to behavioral health. Stay tuned for our upcoming podcast, which will resume our discussion on parity compliance. Take care.